Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, February the 7th, 2022. Looking to you, as always, from San Francisco for the Keen On podcast. All of us podcasters, of course, want to be when we grow up, perhaps when we lose a little bit of hair. We all want to transform ourselves into Joe Rogan, who is the multimillionaire, big time podcaster who controls this space. As it happens this morning, uh, Rogan, as so often actually, is in the news. He, uh, he released an apology video after his use of the N-word. We've talked quite a lot actually about the N-word in this show. We had Randall Kennedy, the Harvard Law School professor who, uh, who wrote a book entitled The N-Word. He actually spelled it out. So this is a theme we've talked about. Uh, the Spotify CEO, Dan Black, who I know, apologized, according to the Wall Street Journal, to his employees for Joe Rogan, saying that he doesn't believe in silencing him. In other words, uh, Spotify doesn't want to give away uh, Rogan's revenue, understandably. Um, a lot of the, the, the current furore over Rogan began over COVID. Um, Neil Young uh, asked Spotify to take his songs off Spotify because of what he calls misinformation about COVID being articulated on the Rogan show. Joni Mitchell then joined him, two old timers, and it's interesting that they actually had quite a lot of impact. And then the doctors piled in, 270 physicians and scientists wrote letters to Spotify suggesting that uh, Joe Rogan uh, is a menace to public health. Uh, and now all the, all, the, all the shows on Spotify come with a warning, especially ones associated with COVID. Um, Rogan, though, has had quite a lot of doctors on his show. My guest today, Dr. John Abramson, has been on the Joe Rogan experience, and I was watching it, and I thought, actually, to be fair to Rogan, he did a fairly, he was pretty fair in terms of um, allowing uh, John Abramson to talk about uh, the impact of uh, Big Pharma on COVID, whether or not he thought that vaccines should be given. Uh, Abrams, Abramson says, yes, uh, Rogan clearly is rather suspicious. Um, and uh, Abramson has gone big time. I mean, he was always a bit big time, but he's gone big time having been on the, uh, the Rogan show. Uh, he not only talked about the vaccines for COVID, but also um, Big Pharma's role in the opioid uh, crisis, which is a huge issue. Uh, Abramson is talking, of course, because he has a new book out called Sickening, how Big Pharma broke American healthcare and how we can repair it. And I'm thrilled that um, John Abramson, MD, MSC, uh, Dr. Abramson, to uh, his patients, I guess, is joining us from Ipswich, an hour north of Boston. John, uh, what's your take on this whole Rogan furor? What does it tell us about our sensitivities, about medicine, Big Pharma, and of course, COVID? 
Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, The Rogan thing is an interesting kerfuffle. Uh, There are several layers to it. Uh, On the one hand, uh, we've got um, the anti-vaxxers who have um, a passionate fervor for presenting their case and delivering it to people who tend to share their point of view. Um, That is not to say that everything they say is wrong, but they tend to look at things through a single lens. And then we have the way that information is delivered now to the American people is changing pretty quickly. And we've got things opened up here. The internet, like your show, opens up dialogue. And I think that's a great thing. a surprise about the internet that we're all coming to learn is quite important is that rage and anger and uh, absolute positions, uh, polarizing positions, tend to create more value on the internet than thinking about building the common space that's going to promote the public good the best and invite in almost all the folks in our society, except for the very fringes of the polarity. So we're finding that there's this predilection for anti-vax ideology and and pro-vax ideology can be excessive at times as well. Um, And it travels very well on the internet. And in the particular situation of COVID, we've got a problem because we have a major public health crisis going on. And um, I firmly believe that People should get vaccinated. That it it's will... no coincidence, though, John, is it, that we have this major health crisis, this epidemic, at a time in, in which there are cultural epidemics as well. They seem to go together. There was a lovely piece uh, by uh, Yanan Ganesh, the FT uh, columnist. He's been on my show uh, over the weekend, Joe Rogan and the Lost Boys. Today's young men are hungrier for guidance than my ever, than my cohort ever was. People seem lost when it comes to expertise, especially the young people. But at the same time, as you suggest, they're angrier and more and more suspicious, which explains why Rogan has this iconic, almost religious aura about him because he's managed to straddle both the hostility towards expertise and also uh, the fact that everyone seems lost and are desperate for guidance. I, I agree totally. <clears throat> and um, maybe we could substitute a slightly more precise word than anger. They're pissed off. They're pissed off that the jobs that their parents had aren't available to them, that the security and that the social structure that existed for their parents doesn't exist and that they're uh, less likely to get married and less likely to have kids and less likely to have their lives unfold the way generations before them did. Um, and we're seeing that their health, the health of white non-college educated uh, guys is uh, just plummeting compared to college educated folks and the rest of the world and the rest of the people in other wealthy countries. So they're not getting a fair deal. They're not getting their share of America. They're not getting the. Do you believe that John, or is this, are you just articulating what what these people think? No, no, no. Because they're being told by people like Joe Rogan. No, it's true. It's true. Excuse me. 
if people, if working Americans now got the same share of the wage pie that they got in 1980, the median family in the United States, which earns about $58,000, would have $20,000 more, which it is now generously donating to the top 1% because the divvying up of the wage pie has changed so much. So they're, they're not getting a fair deal. Their wages have gone up some 24% since uh, 1980 and the top 1% has gone up 242%. And the small pittance that uh, the median family has gotten is consumed by healthcare costs. John, um, you believe, uh, as you articulate in, in, in your excellent new book, Sickening, that, um, that Big Pharma broke the American healthcare system. But we've had so many shows about how everything in America is broken. Uh, last week, I had the brilliant journalist Christopher Leonard on, Lords of Easy Money, how the Federal Reserve broke the American economy. Then the next day, I had CBS tech correspondent Jacob Ward, The Loop, about how big tech is breaking humanity. Then earlier in the week, I had Michael Waldman on about how special interests have broken American democracy. Um, everything, to quote Bob Dylan, is broken, it seems. Um, and healthcare is at the heart of this, isn't it, um, uh, John? I, I think health, it may not be at the heart of all of it. I mean, the financial And I system. use that word carefully, John, of course, heart, because uh, we all have hearts. And uh, one of your critiques is how the the big farmer is using statins to make us fearful of having heart attacks. I hope no one has a heart attack listening to John Abramson. If, if you do, including don't do the podcaster and his, and his guest. <clears throat> um, yeah, the story is a little bit different in uh, in medical care because what happened is big pharma has taken over what doctors think the right way to practice is. They produce this research, they, they fund most of the research, they control most of the research, the research isn't peer reviewed, um, <clears throat> the way doctors are led to believe it is. So the, the pharmaceutical industry has become a mechanism, Angus Deaton, the Nobel Prize winning uh, economist. Who's describes, been on the show, yes, a great yeah, man. Yeah, he, he describes the American healthcare system as a method of transferring money from working Americans to investors. And I think that's a good description. And along the way, some of the drugs that they develop are really beneficial, but many are not. And all of them cost too much. So the job of pharma is to maximize the return on their, the financial return on their investors' money. That's their job. Isn't it more complicated than this, John? I take that point. And of course, we've you, just as big pharma is breaking everything in America, big tech is breaking everything, big oil, everything big is breaking. And it's the critique of the American free market system. But there's something else going on here, which to me is in, in some ways more interesting. I had uh, Michaela Peterson on my show recently. She uh, amongst other things, is the daughter of Jordan Peterson. And Michaela and Jordan, they seem obsessed with their own health. 
if anything, and they're both extremely important and popular podcasters, and they somehow have captured the cultural zeitgeist. These characters like Peterson and, of course, Rogan, and Peterson and Rogan seem to work in sync together. They're often on each other's shows. There's this obsession with health. Why? When I was growing up, no one ever talked about health. No one cared about it. You lived, you died, and that was the end of it. Um, I agree. I mean, <clears throat> that's the way it was when I grew up. Uh, but I, I, I don't know that I fault people for being concerned about health. I, I'm I not hope. criticizing. I, I, my, my point is not that this is bad. What I don't understand is how people like Peterson and uh, Michaela and Jordan Peterson here we have a, a YouTube, a, a very popular, almost 3 million views on Jordan Peterson talking about something called benzodiazepines, which I've never even heard of until I saw Peterson on. <laughs> There's this hunger for people to talk about the complexities of medicine, which they don't seem to understand. They're amateurs. They're not doctors like you. You have, as your book suggests, both an MD and an MSc. Peterson doesn't have this. What is this hunger amongst popular figures in the culture, particularly those on the right wing, people like Rogan and Peterson, about mastering science, becoming almost as authoritative on science as you are? Mm -hmm. I, Andrew, I don't know that I can answer that question. I, well, know, I've come to you, John. You're the doctor. You need, <laughs> to, you need to have the answer to this. All right. Well, then I'll have the answer. And the answer is um, that much of American society has been medicalized. And much of that is to get people thinking about talking to their doctors about getting medicines and tests and procedures. And much of our economy, uh, about 18% of our entire economy right now is oriented towards healthcare. And it's been a very successful orientation of our uh, economy towards healthcare because the other wealthy countries are spending about 7% less of their economy on healthcare than we are. And their populations are healthier. It They're seems that the more healthier. Americans spend on healthcare, the unhealthier they become. Is that fair, John? That's exactly right. They're far healthier. The United Americans rank 68th in the world in healthy life expectancy, 68th. We've dropped from 38th in 2000. Our health is a disaster. An excess 1,300 Americans are dying every day because our health is worse than the health, than the, than the age-adjusted mortality rate in the other uh, developed countries. I so, shouldn't be laughing, John, but it is sort of rather funny, isn't it? It's uh, only funny in the sense that this crisis, the crisis of our poor health and healthcare, is even more deadly than the COVID crisis. Right even more deadly. And it's not covered. It's like there's a blackout. Nobody can see it. Well, Nobody you're covering it. it. Uh, your, your, uh, your book, uh, your new book, Sickening, you also did it in your, uh, in your first book, which was very influential, Overdosed America. We've had other people on the show. Uh, Robert Pearl, who I'm sure you know, talks about the, the crisis of a culture of medicine, argues that all doctors or most doctors are as miserable as patients. Uh, we've had the left-wing journalist Tom Hartman on the show on the shame, shameful history of American healthcare. It somehow seems to be exhibit A when it comes to the breaking of America, right? It, it does, Andrew, but it, it does for those people like yourself and your listeners who are paying attention. 
But if you look at mainstream media, it's not there. It's not there. They're not covering it. Well, Rogan is. He's mainstream. Rogan is. And I guess you'd call him mainstream at this point. I guess you'd call him mainstream. He's 11 million people. Um, But in terms of the typical mainstream media that I grew up with and probably you grew up with, I can't tell how old you are. um, I'm older than you. No way. No, I'm teasing you. Go on. (laughs) Um, You lost my train of thought here. Uh, uh, Just to prove the point of my age. Yeah. Well, you're not that old, John, are you? I am. It's it's serious. But anyway, um, what's happening is there's so many damn drug ads on TV and in the media. And it seems that they don't want to have people like me on when there are drug ads around. Yeah, and 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 I want to come to this in the because I, I, this is a serious show. I mean, and and John, uh, your book, sickening, how big pharma broke American healthcare and how we can repair it, is a, is a, is a is a very serious book about perhaps the central problem in America. And you're absolutely right. When you watch television, it's one of the reasons I don't watch television. Every ad is either for a car or for some sort of um, some sort of medicine which no one can understand. So, John, after the break. I want to come back uh, and talk about uh, sickening, how Big Pharma uh, broke or how Big Pharma is breaking and continues to break American healthcare and perhaps American society, because it is one of the great issues uh, in the world today. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to John Abramson, the very wise, I'm not going to call you old, John, but the very wise MD, MSC an author of really important new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare. We're going to get into the weeds on how Big Pharma indeed has broken American healthcare after the break. So everyone, we have 60 seconds. You can go and take all your medicine and we'll be back in 60 seconds and continue talking to uh, John Abramson. See you after the break. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, If you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, In terms of Uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, 
there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We're speaking with John Abramson, uh, MD, MSc, uh, very distinguished Boston-based doctor, author of Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare. Um, John, uh, a few months ago, I had young journalist Brendan Burrell on the show, the author of The First Shots, the epic rivalries and heroic science behind the race to the coronavirus vaccine. Big Pharma, clearly there are problems with Big Pharma, but they're the ones who delivered the vaccine in record time. So they're not all bad, are they? No, they are not all bad. And that's what makes this such a difficult problem. They essentially control all of medical science that gets commercialized or the therapeutics that fit into pills and injections and patches and so forth. <clears throat> they control all of that. And some of it is really important. The drugs that uh, suppress HIV infection and hepatitis C are really important. And the vaccines are really important. I think the vaccines represent the best of pharma and the worst of pharma. The best in the sense that the pharmaceutical companies, particularly Moderna and um, Pfizer, uh, were able to take the research that the NIH had done, completed in 2016, to develop uh, the infrastructure for developing mRNA vaccines. And Pfizer and Moderna were able to take the genetic code that Chinese, sent, Chinese scientists sent over and within a month turn it into um, the recipe for uh, vaccines that were then uh, produced and tested and Lo and behold, they work awfully well. Uh, right now, with the Omicron variant prevalent and highly infectious, uh, the risk of dying of, of COVID is 20 times greater if you have not been vaccinated. And I would encourage everybody to get vaccinated and boosted uh, if that's recommended. That said, there are two huge problems with the vaccines. The first is that <clears throat> President Trump, to his credit, uh, created Operation Warp Speed because the drug companies weren't working. They weren't enthusiastic about working on vaccines because vaccines typically aren't big money makers. <clears throat> and President Trump took the strategy of just throw money at it, a lot of money at it. We threw five times more money per capita than the EU did in the early days. And Americans got vaccines much quicker than the Europeans did. Um, <clears throat> these um, contracts that Operation Warp Speed uh, made with the drug companies gave them a lot of money. Uh, and what they didn't do is they didn't reclaim the right for the, for the federal government to assist the third world in making and distributing vaccines. There was no reason not to include that in these contracts that were Clearly, worth Are there particular companies, Pfizer, Moderna, who were responsible? We have a lot of stories about how some of these vaccines came from startup doctors in, in Germany and elsewhere. Uh, is mm -hmm. there, are, are there good and bad companies here, or did all big pharma behave in the same way when it came to giving um, away the vaccine to less, uh, less wealthy countries? Yeah, all big pharma does. Uh, Peter Hotez in... Um, 
uh, down in Texas is developing a vaccine that he is not going to patent, and hopefully it will be widely distributed in third world countries. Um, so all, everyone who's involved in this is not uh, guilty of this, but everyone who's in the big pharma companies, they have to behave like this. Their job is to maximize the return on investment, the financial return on investment to their investors. That's their job. If they don't do it, someone else will do it. So they, I wasn't privy to the conversations, but the deal that Operation Warp Speed made with the drug companies, the big drug companies, was that we're not going to enforce global vaccine equity. We're going to let the drug companies sell their vaccines in the places in the world where they'll make the most money selling what they got. And that is obviously the wealthier countries. So we <clears throat> we left the the third world largely unvaccinated. Uh, Africa now has a vaccination rate of approximately nine percent. And uh, the first uh, and and this is just creates a breeding ground for the variants. So what's yeah, that's interesting, John. Last night just happened to watch uh, the constant gardener, John Le Carre's critique of big pharma from yes. nineteen uh, from two thousand and five. Yes, which is set in Africa and focuses exactly on what you're talking about. I assume not much has changed since Le Carre wrote The Constant Garden. Uh, no, he was writing mostly about the research that was done. <clears throat> it's a, a different angle on the same story. But what happened is, it, let's take, say it's not vaccines, it's widgets, that Pfizer and Moderna were making widgets. And everyone in the world wanted a widget. And Pfizer and, and Pfizer and Moderna could only make a certain number, and their job is to make as much money as they can. So they'll sell those widgets to the wealthiest countries, and that's what's happened. Um, it's a, it's very simple. That's what happened. They the are. I mean, is, sorry, go on. <clears throat> the problem is that vaccines aren't widgets, and when we leave large swaths of poorer countries with lower vaccination rates. What we're doing is ensuring that these mutations, these, these viral variants are going to come back to the United States and bite us in the butt. So the vaccine companies made these brilliant vaccines, the best of pharma. I, I'm not critical. Um, but they handled their business in a way that's going to severely compromise the benefit that Americans receive from their wonderful vaccines. John, um, you, as I said, you were on the uh, the Rogan, the Joe Rogan show, also talking about the opioid crisis. We've done a lot of shows about that. I had Sam Kinoni's a uh, very important new book on fentanyl, which is an illegal drug, but nonetheless one distributed widely in the United States. In terms of your critique of big pharma uh, sickening, how is this connected with? the opioid crisis and the distribution of illegal drugs like fentanyl? Yeah, that's a great question. So the opioid crisis, the, the, the um, Purdue Pharma's catalyzing the opioid crisis in the United States was horrendous in terms of the harm that's been done. And especially now with the street fentanyl being 50 to 100 times stronger and being the primary cause of uh, overdoses now, not prescription drugs. But the 
a horrific drug that got normalized, the use of which got normalized by the Purdue Pharma. But the key thing about OxyContin is that it wasn't special. It was just journeyman BS marketing. They made up three marketing principles that uh, that OxyContin wasn't going to be addictive because it was less potent than morphine, that it couldn't be abused, and that it lasted 12 hours so people didn't get peaks and valleys. And that's every, uh, I spent 10 years as an expert in litigation. I saw 20 million documents per case, and every case was virtually the same thing. The scientists uh, develop the science and then the marketing people develop yeah, the and, and your point in sickening and in, in your other work is that these big pharma is both church and state here that they're building they're making the drugs but they also control the media and the tests around it so a lot of legal drugs like uh, I know you're critical of Humira and Trulicity the kind of drugs you see advertised We'll see it over the Super Bowl weekend, for example, uh, that you're suggesting that Big Pharma is both selling these drugs, designing them, but also justifying them and marketing and that there is no church state division. Is that fair? That's exactly right, Andrew. That, that's how Big Pharma broke American healthcare because they took over the knowledge that the doctors believe and that knowledge is designed to make money, not health. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about, I, I try to avoid going to the doctors, but I'm occasionally on statins. You, you made a bit of a name for yourself showing that statins aren't quite as uh, safe as, as we think. Uh, the same about uh, insulin drugs. Is it in areas like statin and insulin that doctors and big pharma are feeding off our fear? and sort of working off our ignorance as patients to simply say, well, you should take this because if you don't, you might die, but there's never any proof of it. And if you do die because of the drugs, you're not going to know it anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, good question. Um, I think that the fear, uh, the focus on cholesterol in the uh, amongst the public, what's your LDL or what statin are you on? I think that comes from the same source as the doctor's belief that they should be putting people on statins who aren't going to get a lot of benefit. I think it comes from the same place. And what's happened is we have a problem. Heart attacks cause a lot of deaths. It's a fact. Um, so how do you make money on that? You figure out drugs you can give that will lower the blood level of cholesterol, which they do very well. But maybe they don't work so well to prevent heart disease. So if you look at the straight facts um, and if advertisements told the truth, everyone would know this, but it'll probably be news to most folks. If a person has heart disease already, there's so-called secondary prevention. You wanna prevent them from getting another heart attack. If you put them on a statin, you reduce the risk of getting having another heart attack uh, by uh, about 3.3% in absolute terms, which means you have to treat 30 people who have heart disease with a statin for five years in order for one to benefit. Now, that's the fact. You can spin it, you can conclude whatever you want based on your own values, um, but that's the fact. And 
That's why people who have heart disease, quote, must take a statin. Because this is, uh, and I looked up the definition, you, you have your new book out, Sickening. This is indeed sickening. Uh, but the definition, at least according uh, to the internet, is uh, sickening is causing or liable to cause a feeling of nausea or disgust, irritation or annoyance. Everyone is outraged by this. It's no great secret, uh, John, that the healthcare system is broken. You've done a great job in your book, um, uh, Sickening How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare. The great question, of course, is the final one in your subtitle. How can we repair it? Andrew, before the end, we always do that in these kinds of shows. Sorry, uh, what were you going to say? I I just want to finish up with statins because it's a one out of 30 chance that people with heart disease are going to benefit from taking a statin. I'm not out of 30. So why would anyone ever gamble on that? It's a terrible. Well, some people do. And that's okay. I'm not here to say whether they should or they shouldn't. They should just know that and discuss it with their doctor. Right. So, I, and I think most people who would know that, who would hear that would probably say it's just not worth the effort or the money. So what are we going to do about it, John? Is the, as I said, everything, you know, to, to quote the great Bard, everything is broken uh, from politics to healthcare to the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, to the American economy. What are we going to do about big pharma? How can we fix this? How can we make it healthy again? Yeah, well, it's pretty simple. Um, I can tell you in three minutes how to make it better. Well, you got, I've got four minutes, John. I'll give you, you got four, four or five minutes. minutes. Explain right, how we can fix it. this thing because it's one of the great problems in American society. So I can certainly spare you five minutes. Okay. Um, number one, Doctors don't know which drugs work and which ones don't because the peer review is a sham. It's not based on transparent analysis of the data. And we in the United States are practically unique among wealthy countries in not having what's called health technology assessment, an independent uh, organization that assesses the scientific data and determines what the best therapies are. For statins, the the articles that have been published are almost entirely commercially funded. The data have not been liberated. And when the guidelines are made, which are very powerful for doctors, they tell doctors which who, who should be on a statin and who should not be on a statin. And the electronic medical records kind of in, impose those standards. The people who wrote those guidelines didn't get to see the data either. They don't see the data. So step number one is to liberate the data. And you're concluding, Andrew, that if people with heart disease knew it was only one out of 30 who got who improved taking a statin, that nobody would take it. For people who haven't had heart disease but are at somewhat increased risk, you have to treat between one out of 100 and one out of 140 for five years. John, is that, order- I don't want to eat into your five minutes, but is, is it what you're saying about statin? Is it also true for insulin? One of my family members is um, is on Glumetza, which is I think thirty six thousand dollars a month. They really have no idea of its effectiveness either. Is this true for everything, or just for statins when it comes? No, to no, it's the same thing for insulin, which is why I uh, put that chapter up front in my book, uh, because the newer insulins, the insulin analogs, uh, cost about fifty two hundred dollars a year, 
And the older insulins, which are also genetically engineered, recombinant human insulin, costs about $480 a year. And there is no evidence for type 2 diabetics who use 80% of the insulin in the United States. There's no evidence that the insulin that costs $5,200 a year is superior to the insulin that costs $480 a year. But no one's actually, the, the, the other thing, John, which is interesting here, is no one's actually paying the $36,000 a month. It's right. all being covered through healthcare. So who's making the money here, really? And is it because the pharma companies also control the healthcare providers and there's some sort of informal deal? Not, no. A few providers take a lot of money to go and speak and, uh, and alter the brains of the people, that, the doctors to whom they speak. Um, but for the most part, the docs aren't... A, in the deal. They're trying to get through the day and practice good medicine. Uh, and what it's, about startups like Blink Health that enable patients to get their drugs? Because my understanding is that 50% of the drugs that are prescribed, patients aren't even using because they're too expensive or too lazy to go to the pharmacy. Yeah, or they get them in mail order and they just put them in their bathroom. So is Blink Health and... that kind of startup, uh, which which is uh, pr pr makes the makes the farmer industry from the consumer side uh, more, more more efficient is that a fix well it's not a fix it may be it it may be a tinker that's worth doing okay. the problem well, is that the knowledge go back I, sorry i interrupted you let's go back to the big fixes rather than the tinkering okay the big fix number one is health technology assessment doctors need to know which drugs are better uh, provide better therapy than other drugs and which drugs are cost effective in providing that therapy. And they also need to know, particularly in the last two conditions we've been talking about, diabetes and heart disease, they need to know how intensive lifestyle changes would compare to the pharmacological therapies. There was a study done in the 90s that showed clearly that intensive lifestyle counseling was superior to medicine or placebo in preventing high-risk people from getting diabetes. In other words, don't eat as much, don't drink alcohol and exercise. You can have a little exercise, you can have some alcohol, you can't have any cigarettes um, and exercise. Right, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to go to the doctor for that. Even I know that one, John. Well, uh, that would get rid of somewhere close to 80% of your risk of heart disease and diabetes. Okay, and what else? Finally, uh, John, can, can uh, we, we need to have uh, we need to have guidelines where the experts have the data and there's no financial money. So doctors have standards that are good standards uh, to abide by that they can apply to their patients. We need to take away the federal prohibition against cost effectiveness training, uh, cost effectiveness studies. So doctors can prescribe the most efficient medicine. Um, that covers a lot of it. Uh, and one thing, John, if we can just start with one thing, if Joe Biden's watching and you want to put one thing into uh, into the administration, where can we start? With yeah, a new law I, what I want to say is, President Biden, please balance our medical research. I know your son died of cancer. I know you love your son and we all hate cancer, but we can't keep investing our national resources in a complex disease 
that we don't know if we're going to make progress on when 80% of our health is determined by how we live our lives and Americans have the worst health in the developed world. Let's go, let's, let's put our efforts and our money and our consciousness and our public relations towards making Americans healthier. And then on the side, we'll look for some fancy drugs that can tinker with the margin. We love it. You know, we need that stuff. But 80% of our health is how we live our lives. And let's create a society in which that's the common, commonly shared health vision instead of I want the latest medicine that was advertised on TV. Yeah. In other words, maybe another fix, John, is just stop watch TV. Stop watching TV. Maybe all you should do is watch Keenan, certainly not Joe Rogan. Uh, uh, John Abramson's Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It is out. It's a must read for anyone who wants to fix broken America, particularly the healthcare system. Um, wonderful to have you, your wisdom and humor, John. Um, what else should people be reading in these strange times in early 20, February 2022 as we count down to the Super Bowl and lots of ads for horrible medicine? Um, so <clears throat> three books come to mind. Uh, a book that was very important in my understanding of what's wrong with American healthcare is John Cassidy, who's an economist who writes for the uh, New, New Yorker. Yeah, How Markets journalist. Fail. I'd love to get him on the show, actually. Yeah, How Markets Fail, because American healthcare is a failing market. Uh, number two is the book by uh, Angus Deaton and his wife, Anne Case, both professors at Princeton, he a Nobel Prize winner, called Diseases of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. Yeah, and Deaton's uh, been, actually, he was on my How to Fix Democracy show. He's brilliant scholar and a, and a gentleman, a wonderful guest. So yep. definitely then, read that one. Yep. And then Alex Zaychik, uh has a book coming out called Don't Pat in the Sun, maybe? Yeah. And Alex is coming on the show next week, John. And I didn't even pay you to say that. Uh, so I drew, like, like, like Big Farmer, I'm, I'm more honest than Big Farmer. Well, uh, Alex's book, let me put a plug in for that. He has explained, uh, I, I take the what's happened to the clinical medicine and explain how the doctors uh, get convinced to practice expensive and less effective medicine. Alex provides the infrastructure to that information by explaining how the trade relations and the patents developed to allow the drug companies to make so much money providing this information that it's they deliver the situation to me, which I then can explain about why things are going awry. And I have uh, Alex Zajic coming on the show next um, on February the 17th, a Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific. So it'll be a wonderful second part to this analysis of American healthcare. John Abramson, real honor to have you on the show. Thank you for being so wise and humorous. Uh, I need uh, you need to come on this show more than the uh, the. The Rogan thing, because I think it's a little, uh, we have a better audience, maybe not quite as big, but a wiser audience. We'll have to have you back, John. Thank you so and, much. Andrew, I answer my telephone, so call me when you want me. <laughs>